Hi there, we really hope you enjoy this teaching from The Message. To find out more about all the exciting things we're doing and how you can get involved, check out our website, message.org.uk. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be finishing off uh, Luke chapter 20. Feel free to open your Bibles there. Page 803 in your pew Bible. Um, let me just remind you where we're at. It's still Holy Week. It's probably Wednesday afternoon. Uh, it's just two days now before the cross. Jesus is in the temple courts. He's spending his final week in the home of his father in the temple. It's the same temple that he's cleared out, the same, same temple court that he's pre preaching and teaching to the people in. And it's the same temple courts where he's faced this barrage of opposition, all these questions at the hands of the religious elite. He has been grilled, interrogated. But their interrogation has all been wrapped up in this kind of righteous, religious righteousness. He's been ambushed by almost each and every sect of the Jewish faith that will be important, actually, in the days to come. They've carefully crafted this set of questions designed to trap Jesus. But Jesus, each and every time he's been questioned and trapped, has beautifully, skillfully defeated them all. Whatever they've brought against him, he's unpicked. He's exposed to the glory of God and to make known the kingdom of God. He's been so successful that in verse 40, you'll read this phrase, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. I love it. So decisive is his defeat of the questions. No one dared. There was no one even going to dare or take a double dare to question Christ. He has confounded them. And he's exhausted their opposition. He's absolutely defeated them and they confess they are done. It's all over. But it's almost like Jesus doesn't skip a beat. He's right back to where he was before all the questions comes. He gets down to doing what he wants to do, which is to teach. I would need a good lie down after that kind of grilling, probably a series of counseling uh, sessions. But Jesus get back, gets back to teaching. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the Herodians have all moved on and Jesus is just left with his people, his devoted followers, his disciples. And it's almost as if Jesus says, right, where was I? Let's get back to it. Verse 45, while all the people were listening, Jesus says to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. His teaching starts with beware. Beware of those lot. Those that came against me, people like that, beware. Jesus begins his teaching by taking those who have been in opposition against him and he begins to use them almost like an object lesson. Beware the teachers of the law. Some versions will call them the scribes. They are those schooled in the law, the educated, those who have, been master, who have mastered the sacred writings, the interpreters of the scriptures. Jesus says, but they are like this. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. And have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men 
will be punished most severely. I like the idea, I like to imagine that as Jesus is beginning to describe one of the scribes, the teachers of the law, maybe one of them walked past and he's wearing nice clothes. He looks fly, long, flowing robes and Jesus is like, beware of that guy. But the question we must ask is why Jesus, just two days before the cross, is wasting his time teaching about teachers of the law. Time is short. The cross is approaching. Surely he needs to talk about the love of God, the coming kingdom. Repent and believe. Luke needs a John 3.16. Maybe we all need to wear shirts saying Luke 20.45 because Jesus is about to bring it. But no, he doesn't. He takes shots at the religious elite. Surely that's just a little bit petty. Surely we expect better from Jesus. Is it just a bit passive-aggressive? Is it a bit revengeful for the way that he's been treated? Is this tit-for-tat teaching in the temple for the way he's been treated? There's a tongue twister for you. But it's none of the above. What Jesus is going to teach on is something that he sees as an incredible great danger to the people of God. And therefore, it's something that we, the people of God now, need to open our ears to. Something that's relevant to today. Something that we must guard against. The word is pride. C.S. Lewis, the legendary author and theologian, says, make no mistake about it. Pride is the great sin. It is the devil's most effective and destructive tool, the essential vice, the utmost evil. Why is it the great sin, Lewis states? Because pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is enmity with God. Pride is the complete opposition to God's plan, God's sovereignty, God's authority in your, in your life. And here we have the religious elite, those responsible for interpreting the truth of the gospel, interpreting the law and the scriptures for us to be able to hear, those who were supposed to be closest to God, those exposed to the truth about God, and they have the responsibility of sharing the character of God, displaying the character of God who those, to those who look on, to make known the steadfast love of the Lord to make known his faithfulness through generations, his abounding grace, his abundant mercies, and yet, what are they doing? These are the guys that Jesus says have received much, and therefore much is expected, but what are they doing? They're swanning round, wearing fine clothes, wanting to be noticed, displaying outward signs of their success, wanting to appear to have attained and achieved In all things, God. You can see how easily it creeps into the church. They expect to be recognized and respected for their righteousness. They want to be spotted in the marketplace, to be given the seat of power in the synagogue, the place of honor at banquets. They are defrauding the poor. 
Like they want to be esteemed as righteous, but yet they are defrauding the poor, abusing the widow, taking advantage of the weak. This is what Lewis, C.S. Lewis writes again, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer and cleverer or better looking than others. And therefore, in pursuit of the more, these teachers of the law have overlooked the needs of others in order to take from those around them in order to get more to be betterer than those around them, even devouring the very little that a widow has. And all the while, they pray these lengthy prayers to stand out as the righteous, to stand out as the favoured. But actually, their righteousness is self-righteousness. They're not approved by God. They're self-approved. They carry self-interest. They're self-made. They're self-satisfied, self-dependent, selfish people claiming to represent God. They believe they're the favored, the first, and the found. In uh, the parable, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, that comes from Matthew's Gospel, the first, the first um, beatitude it goes like this, blessed are the poor in spirit. And often that can be interpreted and recrafted to be blessed are those who recognize their need for God. I love that definition of it. Blessed are those who recognize they need God. These gentlemen have no need for God. They live with a complete anti-God state of mind. The theologian Soren Kierkegaard once wrote, it is the normal state of the human heart to try and build its identity around something besides God. And do you see how that easily happens? We very easily begin to craft our identity, who we are around something other than God and his character. In this instance, these guys are building it pridefully around power. C.S. Lewis says power is what pride really enjoys. They love the power, these men. The power that their righteousness has afforded them. Their education and their wealth has afforded them great power. And it's that which stands in opposition to God. The teaching that Jesus has been teaching us is opposite to all that they stand for. The teachings of Christ, as you've heard me say every month since 2018, is upside down. Where the kingdom, in this kingdom, the first are last and the last are first. Where the weak shame the strong. Where the blessed are the poor and the hungry and the weak weak and the weeping. Where the proud are humbled and the humble are exalted. Where the powerful are brought low and the powerless are lifted up. Where the sinner is made righteous and the self-righteous is left in their sin. Jesus says, these guys will be punished most severely. Tough teaching. Why? Why do these guys get it worse? Because they've received the most. I'm not just talking about wealth, but their position gave them 
nearness to God. Their position gave them a greater understanding of the scriptures. The majority of the people had no access to the word, but what they were taught by these men, they had an understanding of the character of God. They knew in detail the nature of scripture, in detail the nature of our God. They're exposed to grace and love, and yet they deny it and reject it. They are anti-kingdom and they are anti-God. And worst of all, their teaching leads people away from God and into pride, away from a gospel of mercy and grace and into a gospel called prosperity and power. It's not on. It's not good. It's not godly. Turn the page, Luke 21. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put, uh, uh, put, two small copper, put in two small, very small copper coins. I am struggling with the reading. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Mid-flow, Jesus stops. Mid-flow, Jesus looks up and he encounters a situation which moves him. He sees a busy temple court. Remember, this is Passover. Pilgrims from all over Israel, 2.5 million people, expected to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem, each of them bringing an offering, sometimes an animal if they could carry it that far. Some of them are buying it there. Some of them are just bringing coins to the temple. Each will bring their offering. The temple is heaving. And Jesus notices the rich pouring their gifts into the treasury chest. The treasury chest was like this um, beautiful thing with these 13 sort of uh, trumpet-like corn, like cones that would come out. That People would pour them in and they were brass. Imagine the sounds of coins being poured in to these 13 copper flutes. I, imagine, I like to imagine that it's like a seaside arcade when the, when the penny pushers are, are ejecting the cash or the slot machines are, are releasing their money. Imagine the sound, the cacophony of people queuing up to pour their wealth into those great conical shaped flutes. And the richer you are, the louder it sounds. The richer you are, the more noise you make. Bags of silver shekels being poured in. People being wowed at what you've brought. Watching in awe as you pour in your money. There's a guy I was watching on YouTube. Take, he took like dimes to one of those machines in the supermarket. And he was filled the whole trolley full trying to put it in to get the, turn it into money. You know what I mean? And hey, move on. But it's so noisy and it drew such attention. And these guys, the rich, are bringing all that they had, pouring it out for everyone to see. I remember going to a church once. I don't know about you, but I find, it, I find offerings really awkward. I don't want to see people making their offering. I don't want to witness what they might put in. I, I struggle with an open pot where you see the notes and you can guess what, where it's come from or who's put in what or who didn't put in what. I don't want to think about it. I remember going to one church and, um, and, uh, and, and to emphasize that we need to be joyful givers. I'm a visitor that day. But they made us all stand up and to join 
the offering conger. Um, and so we, we began to conger as joyful givers around to lay our money at the feet of the pastor. And he watched as it all went in. And we went round congered. Then we come back congered back to our seat. And I'm like, I don't go here, won't be given. This is awkward, but I congered. <laughs> I sat down, the pastor shuffled round the coins and said, that's not enough. On your feet, joyful conger. And so I stand up, I join the conger again, the conger to the front, people put more in and we go and return to our seats a second time and then a third time before we'd given enough. It was really awkward, I struggled with it. But here we have it on great mass, everybody is, is watching as people pour in, maybe making grand gestures as they pour their silver coins, oh look, wow. But Jesus is incredible. Amongst the rich stands a woman. She's overlooked by the crowds, but yet Jesus sees her. And she has all of his attention. Look there, he says. Can you see her? Can you see the woman? And I imagine people are trying to look around for who, which woman Jesus might be referring to. Can you see her? Can you see the widow? Head covered, dressed in poverty. Jesus has just taught us about the teachers of the law who take from widows and there she is. In the temple courts, coming to make her offering. The devoured one. The one who has been exploited and taken advantage of stood in the temple courts and he watches her intently. She holds in her hand two lepta. Hopefully there'll be a picture appear behind me. Two tiny coins. They are not silver, they are copper. Super thin copper. They are virtually worthless. They are the lowest form of denomination in the Jewish world. They are worth one four hundredth of a silver shekel. In our money, 700 of them are needed in order to make one pound. She holds two. And she anonymously approaches the brass flutes of the treasury to make her offering to God. She has no idea. As she makes her offering to God, that God is there watching. The Son of God takes notice of what she brings. Maybe she prays a prayer in her heart as she opens her hands to release what she has. I love it, you know, in Scripture where it talks about Jesus knowing the thoughts of their hearts. And often he knows the thoughts of their hearts and it's never a good thing. I like to imagine in this moment as he looks on on the widow, open her hand with two silver lepta, knows the thoughts of her hearts as she generously pours out her last to God the Father as God the Son looks on. Her gift makes no sound. 
it draws no attention from the crowd. But yet Jesus is captivated. Her gift is virtually useless. It will have no impact on the offering. It impresses no one except Christ. But then maybe that's all that matters. Maybe this is true humility. Maybe this is the true antidote to pride. A life lived out for nothing but God. The attention of one, the audience of one. A virtually worthless offering. You wonder why she even bothers to put in both coins. Why would you bother with both? You might as well just put in one. It's worth nothing. But to her, it makes a difference. See, the widow is putting in everything. She's putting in all. She's putting in her last. And it's like in that moment she's saying, I love you, Lord, with all my heart, with all my mind and with all my soul. She is the Shema. She's loving God with all of herself. There is no self left. Pride is done in this woman. She has nothing but God. She recognizes that God is is her all. And loving him is all that matters to him, her. In the world's eyes, she didn't make the temple any richer. In the world's eyes, she just made herself poorer. Yet she is closer to God. Nothing separates her. You sometimes wonder why God favours the poor, why the poor seem to get an easier ride through the gospel accounts. Well, it's because they are closer to God, because there's less between them. This woman has just given up her last. Nothing separates her. She is fully dependent on God. God is her everything. And Jesus, looking on, says this, Truly I tell you, he said, This poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. Two wafer-thin, tiny copper coins worth one-fourth of a hundred, one-hundred-four-hundredths of a temple shekel. And yet her two coins are worth all the money of all the rich combined, if they were to pour out those temple treasuries through the flutes and lay it all on the floor and compare it to the two copper lepta, in the kingdom of God, the exchange rate looks a little different and her offering is everything. Their offering is the nothing. Do you see how the kingdom is upside down? Hers is worth a fortune, but theirs is as worthless. Unbelievable. She knows what it is to give her all. She knows what it is to be all in. The question, I suppose, is who shows the greater devotion? Who shows the greater dependence on God? But this morning, as I was writing, I wanted to write down, I wanted to pray in my heart, Lord, Make me like this widow. And as I wrote it, I felt the weight of 
the Lord upon me. Can you make it? Can you make the prayer this morning? Lord, make me like the widow. It's the cry of our hearts to the Lord this morning. Take all of me. Take the last of me. What an incredibly bold and brave prayer. I don't know about you, but I fear the consequences of praying this prayer. I can pray prayers which ask for more. I can pray prayers which say, bring it in, Lord. Give me more, give me more. But can I pray prayers that say, Lord, take it. Take all of me, take the best of me, take the last of me. I'd fear the loss. The loss of family, the loss of comfort, the loss of control, the the risk of exploitation. But is the gain worth it to side with the one who calls himself the defender of widows? Oh my goodness. She what? Do you know the backing this woman's got? She's got the one known as the defender of widows has as her own. Is the gain worth it? I want to be all in. I want to be able to sing hallelujah. All I have is Christ. I want to be able to sing like we did this morning. Nothing else matters. I want to be able to sing like we did this morning. Nothing in the world will do. But is it true? Is God enough for me? Do I trust God with my life? Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, work in my heart. Lord, rid me of self-dependency and self-sufficiency and self-reliance. Lord, work on my pride. You know, we find it really easy to identify the pride in others. We can smell it. But identifying it within ourselves is a different matter. Lord, examine our hearts. Lord, reveal truth to us. Lord, reveal where we are following something that is anti-God. Lord, we, res- we, we re- repent this morning of where we've tried to build our lives around something other than you. Lord, have your way in us. Let me just finish with this. You know, those small copper coins have got this imprint. They're stamped. And they're stamped with just two Hebrew words that mean the Lord has given the king. I love it. It's the last thing I noticed before I was leaving my office this morning. I thought, I wonder what was imprinted upon the coins, the two coins she placed within her hands. The Lord has given the king. The woman with nothing has got everything because the Lord has given a king. Let's pray. King Jesus, we want you. We need you. We recognize our need of you this morning. Be our king. Be enough for us. Satisfy us, Lord. Only you will do, Lord Jesus. Thank you, God. Amen. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out message.org.uk to find out how you can support our work or even get involved with one of our teams. 
We also have another podcast called The Flow Podcast, where we share stories and testimonies of the amazing things that God's doing in people's lives. Search for The Flow Podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a brand new episode there right now.